But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Who has descend, he who has descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let me inform you of a truth about Jesus that you may not have known. Jesus Christ is into bodybuilding. While on earth, he healed the sick and worked miracles and raised the dead and preached the gospel. But when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, he took up bodybuilding. Don't believe me, do you? Well, just think of all the dumbbells he's lifted over the years. In fact, there are quite a few here this morning. And he also likes cleaning jerks. <laughs> I'm the classic example. Boy, he cleaned up this jerk, and I'm thankful for it every day. Hey, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The exalted Christ is far from idle for 1,900 years now. He's been busy building the church, his body. And in chapter 4, Paul reveals his workout plan. You know, the other day I was at the grocery store, and I was looking for some Gatorade. And I couldn't believe this. But they don't sell plain old Gatorade anymore. Do you realize this? It's now... The G series. Today you drink Gatorade in stages. You drink one blend before the workout. It's the primer. And then another blend hydrates and fuels your performance. And then the last mix helps your body recover and grow. As if I really need all of that when I work out. I'm just trying to survive. <laughs> but apparently real bodybuilding occurs in stages. And likewise, the bodybuilding that Jesus did and does also occurs in three stages. Paul discusses it in our text. Verses 7 through 10 reveal what Jesus did to prepare for all of this building. You might say the primer. Verse 11 is about the performers, gifted people through which he works. And then verses 12 through 16, the recovery or 
in essence, the purpose for his building. And this is what I want to talk to you about this morning. I guess we could call it the J series, how Jesus builds up his church. Well, Paul begins his thoughts in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Oh, the grace of God. Hey, you need to know that the growth hormone for the Christian is grace. It's unmerited favor. It's love you don't deserve. Grace not only saves us, it propels us. It makes us effective and bestows God's blessing on what we do. Grace is like a fruit basket. All kinds of delectable edibles come in that same basket. The basket of grace. In that basket, you'll find God's presence, God's peace, God's power, God's pardon. It's all a product of grace. Hey, when Jesus builds his body, understand, it's always by grace. In these previous verses, Paul has been speaking about our unity, that we're one body, we're a collection of believers bound up in Christ. But now Paul focuses on us individually and the role that we play in the body and the grace that propels each one of us. Realize our unity never diminishes the love that Jesus has for us personally. Yes, he sees one church, but never as an indistinguishable blend. We're a fruit bowl, man, not a smoothie. He never fails to see us individually and separately and personally. I love what Augustine said. Christ loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. Thus, when Jesus builds his body, it's one person at a time. He builds up the whole by strengthening each part. The church is no prefab building. You could say, Jesus stick builds his church it's one timber at a time. The Lord gives each of us grace. And as if that were not enough, notice he gives it according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's wonderful news. For when God gave Christ, he gave us the greatest gift that he could give. For me to relinquish my son to die in your place, that would be the pinnacle of sacrifice. And so it was for God. Nothing else he'll ever give will come close to the value of the gift of Christ. And this has amazing ramifications. Romans 8 verse 32 tells us, Now that God has given us his son, there's no limit to the gifts he's willing to bestow. Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And in these next few verses, Paul is going to stress how Jesus uses each of us to build up one another. But he does so against this backdrop of his all-prevailing grace. In other words, if by grace, then the sky's the limit. Jesus is not held back by our sins and shortcomings. He's not limited by our weaknesses and unworthiness, our inadequacies and incompetencies our quirks and the fact we're jerks. He's not limited by any of that. Doesn't bother him at all. Jesus plans to build us up in a new life by the same means he brought us out of the old life, by grace. And then in verse 8, Paul explains what Jesus did to prepare for what Jesus gives. We're told, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, 
He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now here Paul quotes Psalm 68 verse 18, but not quite the way it was written. The psalm reads, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men. But Paul writes, you have given gifts to men. Well, apparently, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul accentuated a different aspect of the picture that the psalmist painted. The psalmist has in mind a familiar scene in the ancient world. A conquering general. He returns from battle to the applause of the crowd. The public comes out and lines the streets and they throw tokens of affection at him. He receives their gifts and accolades. But the victor also brings gifts for his people. He, he comes with the spoils of battle, both captives and treasures. The general not only receives gifts, but he gives gifts. And this is what Jesus has done. He is our conquering hero. He entered the battle to wrestle us from Satan. We were prisoners of sin, but Jesus crashed the compound and overpowered the strong man, and he's now freed all the slaves. Now we're captives of a kind and gracious master. Our conqueror is now our king. I hope you realize that everybody serves somebody. They do. Either you're a captive of Christ or you're a slave to sin, one or the other. Oh, some folks pretend that to be the captain of their own fate, but they're really just pawns in Satan's hand. You don't choose to serve. Your only choice is who you serve. And so here's Jesus. His procession marches down the halls of heaven. He is a conquering general returning home from battle. He is both receiving gifts, the praise and the adoration of folks in heaven and on earth, but he is also giving gifts to his church, to his body. Pay attention to this picture because it helps us understand Jesus' purposes in the world today. He receives our praise, but then he doles out materials and tools to build up his body. Jesus returned to glory, not just to build for us a place in heaven, but to also build for him a church on earth. And here's the path he took, verse 9. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul gives us Jesus' itinerary between his death and resurrection, what he did during those three days. Paul says that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, this could be a reference to Jesus' burial. Lower parts of the earth was an ancient phrase for the grave. But it could mean more. There are other passages like 1 Peter 3 that teach while Jesus' body lay in the grave, his spirit descended into Hades, into the Old Testament underworld. Luke chapter 16, Jesus there, he describes this place of the Old Testament dead as a duplex. Hades had two sides. There was a joyful shore, and then there was a torturous prison, and they were separated by a wide span. 
Those who died believing God's promises went to paradise, the good side. The unbelievers, they went to the place of torment. The saving side of Hades was also referred to as Abraham's bosom. Literally, Abraham's pocket. It was a pocket for the faithful. The searing side of Hades is the bottomless pit. It's the fire that's never quenched, where the worm never dies. Well, in the Old Testament, before the work of Christ on the cross, the door into the presence of God was barred closed. Animal sacrifices covered man's sin, but could never erase them. And Hades served as a holding tank for heaven. Until Jesus, the Lamb of God, could offer himself the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, sin's permanent solution. You see, as soon as Jesus conquered sin on the cross, he descended into Hades. And he gathered up all of those Old Testament believers who had trusted in God's salvation. They became his captives. God's conqueror then led those happy captives into the halls of heaven to the praise of the cheering crowd. Jesus received gifts, but then he also began to give gifts to those who are still on earth. And he still gives gifts to each of us, certain spiritual gifts that help to build up his body. Today, when an unbeliever dies, he or she still goes to Hades. It's flame and it's torment rage until the end. It's not until Revelation 20, verse 14. In fact, John sees the day, it's yet future, when death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. That's the plight of the unbeliever. Whereas the destiny of the believer has changed dramatically. For those who die in Christ, they no longer go to Hades. We go straight into God's presence, thanks to the cross of Jesus. As Paul told the Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus has now opened to us the door to God. And Jesus is still giving gifts to build up his body. You know, when we were kids, we would toss a quarter or a coin or something into the deep end of the pool. We'd watch it sort of sink all the way to the bottom, and then we'd dive in to retrieve the quarter from off the bottom of the pool. You'd get a big gasp of air. You'd hold your breath, and then you'd dive down until you touched the bottom. And then you'd fumble around, and you'd lay your hand on the sunken treasure. And that's when all of a sudden, man, you would push off the floor of the bottom of the pool, and you'd torpedo to the surface. You'd bust through the top of the water, anxious to reveal your prize and to show off your treasure. And this is how I picture Jesus' descent and ascent. He dove into the netherworld, to the bottom of the pool, to the basement of the universe, to this safe house that was full of people who were trusting in their Savior, in their liberator. Jesus gathered up those precious souls into his arms, and then he pushed off the floor of the pool. And three days later, he appeared on earth. After another 40 days, he propelled and torpedoed himself into heaven. Certainly, he's happy to receive gifts. But that's not why he was so anxious to get back to the surface, to return to heaven. He now has gifts, grace in his hand that he wants to give to us. Jesus has grace gifts. Charismata in the Greek language, we call them spiritual gifts. 
Today, Jesus gives gifts to men for them to use to build up his church. In these spiritual gifts, they take many forms. There are at least three lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Romans 12 lists certain motivations of the Spirit. These gifts permeate a believer's personality and color their tendencies. Gifts of teaching or mercy or organization or encouragement. I encourage you to read Romans 12 and see if you can find your gift. 1 Corinthians 12 provides another list. The manifestations of the Spirit. These are more point-in-time enablings with which the Spirit empowers us to give a word of prophecy or a word of wisdom or a healing or to speak in tongues, to praise God in unknown languages. You see, there are both motivations and manifestations of the Spirit. But here in Ephesians 4, there's a third list of gifts. We call them the ministries of the Spirit. And these are the spiritual services performed through people to build up the church. We read in verse 11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now you would think once Jesus had torpedoed back to the surface, once he could breathe back in the fresh air of heaven, that he'd want to take his time. Catch his breath. Take it easy a bit. But not so. As soon as he breaks the surface of heaven, as soon as he goes from time back into eternity, he immediately goes to work helping and building up what he had started on earth. The conqueror gave gifts to his church in the form of gifted people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. When Christ ascended, he gave gifts to men, and some of those gifts were gifted men. Now, don't misunderstand. Every single believer has an important place and function and calling in the body. Everyone in this room has a ministry in this church. You and your spiritual enablings are Christ's gift to the rest of us. No person, no gift is unimportant. Yet yet it's sort of like working a jigsaw puzzle. You like jigsaw puzzles? You know what the hardest part of a jigsaw puzzle is? It's fitting together the edges. Isn't that where you start? You start with the edges. Once the corner pieces are established, then the rest of the puzzle sort of fills in nicely. After the puzzle's built, the missing piece in the middle is just as obvious as a missing piece on the edge, perhaps even more so. But in the beginning, it's those edge pieces that need to come together to give the puzzle shape and dimension and parameters. And so it was with the building up of the body, the church. In the early formation of the church, two ministries were strategic. The role of the apostle and the prophet. These were men who spoke as the oracles of God. It was to the 12 apostles that Jesus gave a special privilege formerly held by the Jewish rabbis, to bind and to loose. To bind was to prohibit. To loose was to allow. And this was the authority by which the apostles established the faith and practice of the early church. This is the authority they used to write sacred scripture. They had the authority to bind and loose. This is what they did in the writing of the New Testament. In fact, this is how the church identifies the divinely inspired writings of the New Testament. 
They were the ones authored by the first 12 apostles who were appointed by Jesus Christ. Now, there are other men in the New Testament recognized as apostles. In fact, you could probably make a case for apostles today. The root word means sent out. And the best translation would be an ambassador or a diplomat. And yet no other person then or now rises to the level of these original 12 apostles. Jesus gave them special authority. I like the designation big A and little a apostles. A big A apostle was one of the 12 that Jesus established. A little a apostle might be a cross-cultural missionary today or maybe a leader, not just of a church, but of a larger movement. Big A apostles, little a apostles. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 20 of Ephesians, Paul calls Jesus the cornerstone of the church. And then he refers to the apostles and the prophets as the foundation. You see, these were the men who had the special role in the church's formation. They were the edge pieces, remember. But now that the edges of Christianity are fixed, the parameters of practice and the boundaries of belief have now been established, now the meat of the puzzle, the middle part, can all be filled in now by two more ministries, by the evangelists and by the pastor teachers. The word evangelist is a noble word. It's a shame that some people today use it as a synonym for charlatan or con man. What comes to mind when you hear the word evangelist? So often it's the three-piece suit, slick back hair, smooth TV preacher. Instead, the most effective evangelist is the guy next door who loves people, who lives out what he believes. He's not afraid to speak up and let other people know what, that Jesus makes him tick. He looks past people's scowls and he sees into their heart their need. He's not intimidated by fear. He's motivated by love. For both Jesus and for people. You see, an evangelist is a person particularly gifted in leading others to Jesus. Do you know people like that? Once Billy Graham, the 20th century's most prolific evangelist, he described this gift. He says, it's from God. You can't manufacture it or organize it or manipulate it. My gift is from the Lord in giving an appeal to people to make a decision for Christ. Something happens I cannot explain. I have never given an invitation my whole life when no one came. Boy, I have. (laughs) But I'm not Billy Graham. He's an evangelist. He's particularly gifted in leading people to Christ. An evangelist is the church's obstetrician. He or she specializes in delivering spiritual babies They calm the sinner and they convince the skeptic that Jesus can be trusted. I think some of the most effective evangelists today are not the high-profile people like Billy Graham. Some of the most effective evangelists have never occupied a pulpit. They fulfill their ministry at the kitchen table with a neighbor or in the coffee shop with a friend. Or they take a client to the ball game and they share their faith and lead him to Christ. You see, every Christian should be a witness and testify of what Jesus did for them. But we're not all evangelists. And if the evangelist is the obstetrician, then the pastor teacher is the pediatrician. 
For he takes the newborn under his wing to feed and to nurture and to keep the babies healthy. Did you know the word pastor is a Latin word? It means shepherd, which reminds me of the new pastor came to the church. At the church picnic, he was introduced by one of the elders as the new hog caller. Everybody laughed except the pastor. He was a little offended by the, by the term. That's when he looked over at the elder and he replied, Well, I'm usually called the shepherd of the sheep, but you know your people better than I do. <laughs> they weren't really off to a good start. And yet a pastor is a spiritual shepherd. He nurtures the flock. He retrieves the strays. He mends the bruise. He protects from predators. He leads the flock to suitable pasture. Oh, the shepherd's foremost job is to feed the flock. He serves hungry hearts with a balanced diet of biblical truth, which means a pastor must also be a gifted teacher. In fact, that's why pastor and teacher here go hand in hand. In, in the original construction of the text here, it literally reads pastor-teacher, one word. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference with Jim Cimbala, pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Jim has been used by God in wonderful ways, and I have no doubt he loves the Lord. But he made a statement with which I disagreed. He said that Christianity isn't as much a teaching faith as it is a doing and experiencing faith. Now, I know what he meant by that. That it's not enough to simply learn and learn and learn and never apply or experience what you've learned. But you see, learning does come first. Christianity is based on a body of truth that must be taught and grasped to be believed. You can't trust, you can't live what you don't know. And this is why the role of the pastor teacher is so vital. It's been said every pastor starts out with a room full of live wires and his job is to make sure they're all properly grounded. It's through gifted men that Jesus does this work. And here's why. Verse 12. It's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The purpose of Jesus' bodybuilding is a larger body. And a stronger body, and a fitter body, and a mature body, and a more active body, and above all, a more loving body. Hey, when we look at our church in the mirror, don't we want a body by Jesus? <laughs> Isn't that what we want, a body by Jesus? A body that's fit and fitted for ministry? This is why he equips the saints for the work of the ministry. Realize most churches are divided into two groups of people. There are the laity and the ministers. The laity are the people who lay around. While the ministers are those who do all the ministry. This isn't God's design. God wants every member to be a minister. Don't say that Sandy's the minister. You know, I just go, I'm just the member. No, you're the minister too. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My job isn't to do all the witnessing and all the visiting and all the counseling and all the giving and all the worshiping. Not at all. 
My job is to equip you so that you can go out and do those things. I teach you God's word so that you'll have the insight and the knowledge to help the hurting and the needy, to resist the devil, to pray effectively, to walk in wisdom, to give a defense of your faith, to represent Jesus. Bud Wilkerson coached the Oklahoma Sooners back in the 1950s and 60s, and he had a famous quote describing a football game that I think applies to a lot of churches. He said, a football game consists of 50,000 spectators desperately needing exercise, sitting in the bleachers, watching 22 men on the field desperately needing rest. And this is the case in most churches. Christians feel inadequate and unprepared to serve the Lord. And so they turn to the professionals, the pastors and the like, to do what God has called them to do. It's a sad scenario. And this is what limits the impact that a church can make. Oh, I was raised in a church where every week the pastor preached a salvation sermon, followed by an altar call. We always had all, we couldn't have a potluck without having an altar call. Apparently, the pastor saw himself as an evangelist. And I'm sure he felt that he was being faithful to the gospel. The problem, though, was that 95%, maybe 99% of his congregation were already saved. I mean, the vast majority of church folk are believers. Come to think of it, that's what you'd expect. Thus, the pastor spoke to 1% of the people in attendance while ignoring the 99%. And as a result, nobody grew. No one became bolder, stronger, wiser, more equipped to influence their world for Jesus. Each week, folks trudged to church, put in their hour plus, and left no better than when they came. I believe the people wanted to grow. They hungered to know God. They desired to work and worship God, yet they didn't know how. Each week they were preached at, but never taught. The believers in that church remained ill-equipped to serve Jesus. And this made for an anemic, sickly church. And I'm sure the pastor too got frustrated. I mean, think of it from his perspective. Each week he baits his hook, he casts it out, but he doesn't catch anything. His bait might be delicious. His casting might be masterful. But if you're fishing in a swimming pool, there are very few fish there. And here's where our pastor went amiss. Since no one responded to be saved, I guess out of his own frustration, he'd sort of broaden out the invitation. Well, if you've backslidden, well, if you've told a lie this week, well, if a lustful thought has rolled across the screen of your mind, of course a lustful thought had rolled across the screen of my mind. I was a teenage boy. Because the pastor failed to teach us to live victorious lives, he then chastised us for being failures. We weren't reading our Bible enough and witnessing enough and praying enough and serving the Lord enough. You see, it's a lot easier to beat sheep than it is to feed sheep. But what if that pastor had fed his flock the meat of God's word? And padded their faith with spiritual muscle. What if every Sunday morning he had used that time to equip the believers. 
to receive from Jesus and to be loved by Jesus and to love Jesus in return and to learn how to love him and represent him and minister in his name and make a real difference. You see, rather than one person preaching the gospel on Sundays at church, that pastor would have ended up with hundreds of people preaching the gospel seven days a week in hundreds of places all over town. The most important thing I've learned from my pastor, Pastor Chuck, and from Calvary Chapel is this simple truth. And that is that healthy sheep reproduce. If I feed God's flock, God's word, that church will grow. It'll grow naturally. The word of God changes lives. And changed lives become witnesses. And witnesses bring other people to Christ. And the chain reaction just continues on and on and on. The only sheep who fail to reproduce are weak and sick and malnourished sheep who aren't well fed. My job as a pastor teacher and our priority on Sundays is not to whip the saints or even to win the sinners. You know, winning folks to Jesus is what we should be doing Monday through Saturday, out in the neighborhood, in the office, on the job. In fact, whenever I do conduct an altar call, it's usually an addendum to the sermon. I I just sort of felt compelled that morning to invite a few stray sinners to step forward. But whether anyone steps up at the time isn't the measure of the success of the sermon. For 99% of the time, the message was geared to build up the body of Christ and help Christians grow. And it's ironic. For a church that might go several weeks without having an altar call, it's amazing to me the number of folks that we do see come to Christ. There's one explanation. Healthy sheep reproduce. Believers that are challenged and encouraged and taught are those who grow in Christ and then bring other people to Jesus. And verse 13 adds, Jesus is building up his body till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And notice that insightful phrase, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Paul realizes that there is a unity of the faith. There is a consensus. There is a right And there is a wrong. There's a truth and there's an error. There's a right interpretation and a wrong interpretation. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 tells us, No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Don't don't you ever say of the Bible, Well, you have your interpretation and I have mine. No, the right interpretation is the intent that God had when he breathed it into being. What did the original authors mean when they put their thoughts down on the page? You see, Paul tells us that as we grow, we'll all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. As we're built up, our awareness deepens. Oh, of the written word, the Bible, but also of the living word, Jesus. But notice, when it comes to the unity of the faith, I'm not moving towards you. And you're not moving toward me. He says, till we all come. Notice we're all moving toward God. Evidently, none of us have arrived. None of us have a monopoly on truth or a theological monopoly or we've arrived spiritually. No one has flawless doctrine. We're all learning and we're all growing and we're all adding and we're all moving toward the unity of the faith. And into a perfect man 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And you see, here's the goal of all spiritual growth, to be as much like Jesus as I can be. Jesus is the perfect, the ultimate, the quintessential, the prototypical, the complete human being. Jesus the Messiah is fully alive and fully equipped and fully mature. And if you want to be fully alive, you'll want to be like Jesus. If you aspire to be like Jesus, you'll add stature and fullness to your resume. You'll become deeper and stronger and steadier and more steadfast in your faith. Virtue will flow from you just as it flowed from Jesus. Don't you want to be a person of stature? You know, the older I get, the more important this is. I want to have some stature, some fullness to my life. That when I walk into a room, the people there respect me. Coworkers who otherwise use foul language suddenly watch their mouth when you're around. Oh, they might not agree with you, but they see your integrity and they respect how you live. You know, Jesus commanded this kind of admiration. And I say commanded, not demanded. He, he didn't demand it. He didn't sue or file a grievance requiring people to respect him. They just did. People were in awe of Jesus. He had stature. He had fullness. And as we grow into Christ, th this is how we should be measured. Do people see stature and fullness in your life? And with the character of Christ comes a steadfastness. So that verse 14 tells us we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Sadly, rather than mature and grow, many believers, they remain little children. They don't know what they believe, let alone why they believe what they believe. And as a result, they get tossed about by the winds of heresy and vain speculation. Like a tiny rowboat on a rowdy sea. They rise and they fall with every wave. Every pitch of the sea threatens to capsize their faith. They're always up, always down, always in, always out. You know, I think the most underrated Christian virtue just might be consistency. Faith that's not in flux, that stays the course. This is to be admired. You know, when believers aren't taught the Bible, they don't know what to believe, and they end up vulnerable to every smooth-sounding doctrine that blows up from the gulf. Boy, beware of the gulf stream. The gulf. A stream of doctrine blows up from the gulf. It blows with some force, but it blows in circles. It always sounds new, but there's nothing ever new. It's just the gulf. It's a gulf. It's just empty. And, and this is why we teach the Bible verse by verse. When you can point to chapter and verse, then you've got truth you can bank on. It's backed up by the book. In contrast to what Paul describes as trickery, cunning craftiness, deceitful plotting. He tells us in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. See, when a person teaches the truth of God, bathed in the love of God, believers grow up in this Christ-likeness. Author Kent Hughes, he, he points out that the better translation of this Greek phrase, speaking the truth, 
is literally truthing. When believers go out truthing, when they go out seeking to advance the truth, maybe by negotiation or by legislation or by participation or even articulation, love should go hand in hand with their truthing. Realize, truth by itself is a blunt instrument. You know, people hit with truth alone, they suffer the spiritual equivalent of blood force trauma. Love is what gives truth its cutting edge. Truth advanced in love becomes a mighty sword. Well, finally, in verse 16, Paul speaks of Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Jesus is certainly the head of the church, but we are his body. Imagine that. Jesus considers you as near and as vital to him as a body part. As a foot or a hand or a liver or a spleen. Man, Pastor Sandy called me the spleen in the body of Christ. I wonder what he meant. You remember the old spiritual? It's also a children's song. Lyrics go like this. Knee bone connected to the backbone. Backbone connected to the shoulder bone. Shoulder bone connected to the neck bone. Neck bone connected to the head, head bone. But then it also goes on. The toe bone, foot bone, heel bone, shin bone, ankle bone. But then it finishes up. Now hear the word of the Lord. And we too need to listen up. What a privilege it is to be a member of the body. Guys, Jesus is not a bodiless spirit. He has two bodies. He has a glorified body in heaven. And he has a body on earth that should be bringing glory to him. And yet notice Paul refers to us not as bones, but as joints. Oh boy, talk about irony of ironies. Some of you have gone from smoking joints and hanging out in joints <laughs> to being joints. But I love this analogy. Think of what a joint does. A joint connects. It, it links together bones and tissue Every joint in your body is dependent on every other joint. I mean, if the elbow don't bend, the hand won't reach, and the blood, heart will be pumping blood in vain. That's why every joint has to stay in play. Paul says, as every joint supplies, every person in this room has something they can supply the rest of us that will bring strength and service and it will benefit the whole. As Paul puts it, every part does its share. And i got to ask, if everyone who comes to Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain and calls this place home attended like you do and gave like you do and served like you do and prayed for this church like you do, what would this church look like? You know, you say you're growing spiritually. Well, according to Paul, Personal growth translates into corporate strength and health. If you're really growing spiritually, your life will be more and more and more a blessing to the rest of us. You know, among pastors, there's an old adage. They like to say in any church, 80% of the people do 20% of the work. 
And 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And I imagine that in most churches that statistic is true. But I pray that our church will be different. That we'll take seriously the role that Jesus wants us to play in his church. Well, what is Jesus into today? (laughs) He's a bodybuilder. He's primed. He's gone to great effort to prepare to build. Jesus descended. Then he ascended to give gifts to men and to perform his work through gifted men. Jesus picks us up. He coaches us up. He builds us up all for the purpose of us coming together and working together under the headship of Jesus Christ. This is his goal. Is it ours?